4. We'll be reading verses 14 through 30. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out all throughout the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Well, we've heard you did at Capernaum too, in your hometown as well. And he said to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us this word from the life of Jesus. Thank you for showing us this because, Lord, you desire to show us yourself. You desire to show us who it is that can say that you are with us always. God, may we see that. We don't want to be like the people that you went away from, but we want to be those who can claim that you are with us always to the end of the age. God, I pray that you would... Illuminate our hearts and minds. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, back when I used to work for the government many, many, many years ago, um, I got to shake hands with a couple presidents very briefly, and I got to be around them for a few moments and hear them speak, interacting with them. And, I, and over the years, I've gotten to, to briefly interact with many famous people and movie stars like Harrison Ford, one of my favorite actors, and, and Steven Seagal and Jean-Claude Van Damme. And, and I met leaders in government and industry and, and people who were worth um, insane amounts of money. But there have been few people I've met that I was truly, deeply impressed with. It was none of those. 
One of the most impressive people I've ever met was a, an old lady named Mrs. Farmer, who you will never meet. She'd been abused. She was left alone to raise three children in northern Canada in a harsh climate there with very little money. She didn't know a lot of, of deep theological terminology, and she might not have been able to explain the laws of thermodynamics, and she didn't um, understand a lot of complex ideas when it came to physics or science or how things worked, but she was one of the smartest, wisest, and most godly people I've ever met. And, and if I had the choice, I'd, I'd rather be like Mrs. Farmer than any of the other people I've met in my lifetime. On the other hand, I've met um, brilliant theologians and, and people with him who are impressive thinkers and incredibly brilliant photographic memories who can tell you a, a book and a page and a paragraph where something was and explain massively deep concepts. Jerry Bridges was not one of those guys. He was not the most brilliant theologian. He wasn't the most entertaining speaker. And in fact, I think my wife would say he was really boring. He was dull. He was monotone. And if you didn't pay attention, you might fall asleep. He didn't have illustrations that wowed. He didn't have impressive speech. But when he talked, it was like hearing Jesus again a little bit. And I've never taken more notes in my life and on any one topic in any class I've taken than his simple class on grace. It was mind-blowing. It was soul-inspiring. It made me want to know God's grace for myself even more. And the thing that made him impressive, it wasn't the books that he read or his charisma because he had very little. I don't mean that disrespectfully. He's passed now. What was truly impressive is, is what that he actually thought and act like he needed Jesus. And he relied on him every day. And he, and he talked about preaching the gospel to himself every day because he needed it. And, and as a result, it was, like he, it was like he knew Jesus and he experienced Jesus personally. And the same was true for Mrs. Farmer. What was impressive about both of them was really the same thing. They both knew that they needed Jesus daily and they looked to him daily and they experienced him daily and they were changed by him daily. Some people are impressive because they've accomplished a lot and done a lot, but that's really not what is most impressive. That's not the one that Jesus is with. Some people marvel at Jesus. They admire his teaching. They think he was a good moral teacher. They think he's really impressive, but they don't really live for him. Others actually know they need Jesus for themselves, and they seek him daily in faith. The question is, which one are you? What are you seeking? Are you seeking to be impressive by your accomplishments, by things you can do, by your resume, by what people think of you? Or are you seeking the one who is most impressive to change you because you know you need him? Uh, the question I believe this passage in Luke, it, it's meant to provoke within the hearts and minds of the readers. It's not really overly complex at all. It, it's it's life-changingly important, though. And the question really is simple but profound. And here's the question. Do you marvel at the teaching of Jesus, or do you need him for yourself? 
maybe put it another way, do you just marvel at the teaching of Jesus or do you need him for yourself? What we see at the beginning of this passage is that, that people really were truly amazed by Jesus and his teaching. He went back to his hometown. They were amazed by him. And it says that everywhere he went, he says he returned the power of the Spirit. A report about him went through all the country. And it says, here's what he says in, in verse 15. He was glorified by all. People thought he was really amazing. People marveled at Jesus. But that's not enough. He clearly did many miracles. He did many signs and wonders that were very important. They demonstrated he has power over all. But why they were important was not because the miracles were so impressive, but because they testified to his words, to what he taught. The miracles weren't the point. They were to attest to him, to the good news that he brought so that people might see that his good news is what they need. And wherever he went, he didn't try to hide what he taught. He went right into their places of worship. He went to religious people. He went to the places of worship, to the people you would think would accept him, would know that they need him. And he taught in all the synagogues. And everywhere he went, it says he was glorified by all. But Luke is trying to get us to see that being amazed by Jesus and his miracles, it is not enough. Being amazed by Jesus and his teaching, it isn't enough. And we see that he goes to Nazareth, the town that he was brought up in. I'll go to the first point, by the way, if you will. Being amazed by Jesus and his teaching isn't enough. He goes into Nazareth where he'd been brought up to his hometown. And I can just imagine it. I, 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 don't, I don't relish the idea of going back to my old hometown, seeing people I grew up with who knew me, seeing, seeing how I was, the good, the bad, the ugly, the immature, because people see you in that light, don't they? You know, it's like somebody asked me, hey, did you want to go home for your 30th high school reunion? I'm like, not really. I, I don't have any desire to do that because I hope I'm not the same person. The difference is Jesus actually went back. He was the same person, but it's hard for people to accept. It's hard for people to accept him. And they, don't just, they just saw him as the child Jesus. He goes back to Nazareth. Nazareth is this little backwater town in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's 10 miles from the Sea of Galilee. It's not an impressive town. In fact, no one impressive except for Jesus has ever come from Nazareth. It's not even written about in the entire Old Testament. It's not mentioned once in a place. It mentions tons of different places. Nazareth is a backwater, what I would call a podunk, little redneck town in northern Israel. It wasn't the place you'd expect the Messiah to be raised. And Jesus, he goes back there and he did his typical practice. He would go into the synagogue and he was obviously, they were like, hey, hometown boy makes good. And so the synagogue leaders obviously asked him to teach because the format for the synagogue on, on the Sabbath was that they would, they would read the Psalms, they would recite the Shema, they would then go and they would read from one of the prophets and then someone would teach and and so Jesus was a designated teacher of that day. And so he comes into the synagogue and this scroll is handed to him. And so he takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he's not lucky dipping. He's not accidentally finding it. He unrolls and he finds the place where it says something very specific because he wants them to see who he is. And he goes and he reads it and he deliberately teaches them about who he is. He wanted them to see and to hear the good news and to see that they needed this good news themselves. 
He tells us in verse 20, he rolls back the scroll and he sits down and then everybody's looking at him. What will this one say? We've heard all about him. He left here and now he's done good by himself and he's taught everywhere and everybody's glorifying him. What's he going to say? And they're hanging on every word. And he says something that's shocking to them. He says, today, today, meaning right now, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I don't know what they thought about that for a moment, but they were shocked. They were in awe because the message was clear and unambiguous. He was, he was reading from Isaiah 61, and he was quoting the fact that, that God has anointed him. So he was claiming these very words for himself, saying, God has anointed me. What God did at the Jordan when he was baptized, and, and he, he was filled with the Spirit and came down like a dove, and, and the voice of God, he says, God has anointed me, and so this is right on the heels of that. And he says, I was anointed to proclaim or to, to preach the good news, this, this gospel message. It's the same word elsewhere that's used in the New Testament for the evangelize. And he talks about he was sent to proclaim the good news to the poor, those who are, are poor in spirit, those who know that they are needy. He says, this is the very reason I was sent to proclaim the good news to those who are poor in spirit, those who are needy, because often those two go together. When, when you are impoverished, when you're poor, when you don't have much, you know you need. And so it's not those who are just physically poor, but, but often those who are physically poor know that they need. They need a rescuer. They need a savior. He says, I was sent to proclaim good news to those who are poor in spirit. And then he says, I was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now he's not talking to any captives physically here, but those who are captive know they need to be set free. And he says, I came to proclaim liberty to those who are captive. Now, interestingly enough, that, that word for liberty, it, it's only translated liberty here, and it's used 16 times in the New Testament. 15 of those times, it's, it's always translated elsewhere, forgiveness. It's because liberty is what forgiveness brings. I was, I was sent to proclaim forgiveness, the, the liberty of forgiveness, the freedom that forgiveness brings. It's not that liberty in the sense of the thing like we sing America, the sweet land of liberty. No, this is true liberty, true freedom, forgiveness from sins. He said, I was, I was sent to proclaim liberty to those who are captive. You know, sin brings a debt that we can never pay. I, I don't know about you, but I hate debt. I really do. I, I, I despise debt. I don't like knowing that I have debt. Um, recently, we, 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 we changed vehicles. We had a, a vehicle that was like 238,000 miles, so we, we got rid of the Suburban. We got a, a used minivan, and so when we did that, I had, to, I had to put a little money on the credit card for a month, and it was stressing me out until we sold Suburban, which we did yesterday. It was great, I was, and I was free. I was like, I don't have that. I don't have debt. I hate having any debt of any kind. I don't like anything holding or hanging over me. And I, I don't even like that have a mortgage because, you know, people are like, do you own your home? I'm like, not really. Not really yet. In 20-some years, I might. Like, right now, it's really the banks, and they're just letting me live there because I pay them. But if I stop paying them, they get it back. I don't really own it. 
I don't like that debt. Now, unfortunately, that's the way that our society is structured. I have to have a mortgage, but, but, but I try not to have any other debt because it, it, it's this burden. It's, it's, it weighs on my soul. It makes me feel like I owe other people and I can't stand it. And I, that's how we are with the debt of sin. But the debt of sin, it's a debt we could never repay. We've sinned against a holy, infinite God. We sinned in, in every thought and word and deed. We owe a debt that is completely unpayable for the rest of eternity on our own. And Jesus says, I've come to proclaim liberty, forgiveness to those who are captive, held captive by that debt, constrained by it. What a sweet liberty it is to know that that Jesus came so that we would have liberty and freedom, be forgiven from the debt of our sins forever, even though we've accrued countless amounts of debt. And we're going to continue to accrue, but that debt, even the future debt, has already been paid, and that's what Jesus came to proclaim. Not only that, he says, I came to proclaim recovering of sight to the blind. And, and he's not just talking about physical blindness because people who are blind know they can't see. He's talking about spiritual blindness because we're unable to see God. We're unable to see the truth on our own. And so Jesus came to, to radically open up our eyes so that we might see him, see salvation, see God, see the truth, and have it set us free. He says to set at liberty. Same word again, to set at forgiveness those who are oppressed. The word for oppressed there is, is literally broken in pieces. He says, I came to proclaim liberty or forgiveness for those who are broken. That's what Jesus came to do. And he's telling them this, his own people in his own hometown. He's telling them, this has been fulfilled today. I've come to proclaim these things to you. And he's wanting them to see that they are those who are blind, who are in debt, those who are oppressed, those who are in need of the Lord's favor, the Lord's grace that he came to proclaim. And so he proclaims these things, and they're all amazed by him. Look down in verse 22, it says, all spoke well of him. You would think, wow, in his hometown, well, maybe, maybe they're like, uh, really? But they all spoke well of him, and they marveled. We don't know what else Jesus taught, because Luke is just really giving him the opening to his sermon. But it says, all spoke well of him, and they marveled. All spoke well of him, and they marveled at the gracious words. And, and, and it's euphemism there. They were flowing from his mouth like a river. They were coming from his mouth. They were pouring out like a river. They were just grace was kind of coming out of his mouth. And they were like, whoa, this is amazing. This is marvelous. And you would think, wow, these people must have been born again. These people must have received Jesus. But being Amazed and marveling at Jesus, Luke's trying to get us to see it's not enough. And things take a dramatic shift really suddenly, don't they? If, you, if you're reading this passage and you're reading through it and you're like, what just happened here? I thought they were amazed by him and they were marveling at him and they were like, whoa, these gracious words are flowing from his mouth like a river. And, and then all of a sudden things shift. And, and Luke is trying to get us to see that that being amazed and marveling at Jesus is not enough, but being aware of your need is how you begin to receive his grace. That's the second thing we need to see is that being aware of your need is how you begin to receive his grace. 
And he does that really through Jesus' teaching. And, and it's and it's shocking in a sense because they were just marveling at him. And then all of a sudden, at the end of verse 22, a little shift occurs, and it's a subtle shift. But it's a small, significant question that the people, their heart is revealed by it. And this is not them marveling. This is now a shift where their, their pride is revealed. And they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Weren't they just marveling? What happened? Their pride was revealed. And they're like, isn't this Joseph's son? You can almost hear them saying, you know, wow, everything Jesus is saying, it sounds amazing. And this is really cool and impressive. But, but isn't this Joseph and Mary's kid? And, and, you know, it sounds good, but he just grew up here. He's like a local boy. And he's the son of a carpenter. He's sure he was a good kid. Some would even say he was perfect. But what makes him so special? We've heard Jesus does all kinds of miracles all around the region of Galilee, Galilee but, but he hasn't done any here. What, what makes him so special? What makes him so impressive? And Luke is trying to get us to see that they didn't see their own need for Jesus. Jesus just revealed that he came to set the captives free to bring forgiveness from debt of sin, to, to open up blind eyes, to proclaim liberty to those who are broken in pieces. And they're like, yeah, big deal. Who is this Jesus? They didn't see themselves in the story. They didn't see their own need. Do we see ourselves as one of those people who are in need? Or are we minimally impressed with them because we're overly familiar with them? But Jesus, he knew this self-sufficiency and pride in their hearts. He saw what was going on in their hearts. And he, he turns his teaching to call them, hopefully, to see their need for him and repent. And so what he does is he gives some illustrations. First, he corrects them. He knows it's in their hearts. He says, Dallas, you're going to say, hey, physician, heal yourself. You're going to say, what you did in Capernaum, do here too. He knew they were wanting him to prove how impressive he was. They wanted to get things from him. They wanted to be inspired by him, but they didn't see that they needed to be changed by him. And he says, I no, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And he tells them two stories to show them that God's grace comes to those who know that they are poor and needy. That's what these two stories are doing here. You're like, why is he telling these two illustrations from these two different places? To, uh, this story about Elijah and a story about Elisha. Why is he, why is he telling these two illustrations? And, and really, he, he told this one illustration because Elijah, he was the greatest of the prophets of Israel. And he tells of the account. He says, don't you know that when there was this huge famine, it lasted for three and a half years. And it spread all throughout the region of Israel and all the surrounding countries. There was this massive famine. And there were tons of people in need. And there were a lot of widows who were deserving, who were needy. And then he tells them something shocking, which would have been politically upsetting to them. It would have been offensive to them as well. He says, Elijah wasn't sent to any people in Israel, to the widows in Israel. He was sent outside of Israel, to the land of Zarephath, in, in, in the land of Sidon. And he's trying to get them to see that, that what makes you special is not where you come from. It's not your heritage. It's not your history. He was sent to a woman who knew she was needy. And he wasn't sent to any of the widows in Israel. 
this land of Zarephath and the land of, and the, the city of Zarephath and the land of Sidon. It was, it was the area that, that Jezebel was from, this, this wicked queen who, who married one of the kings of, of Israel. And it was, it was synonymous with wickedness. And what Jesus is trying to get them to see is that, do you know who God shows mercy to? It, it has nothing to do with heritage. It has nothing to do with your background or whether you can claim a pedigree. It has everything to do with knowing you're needy. They would have known that account really well. In 1 Kings 17, 10, he says, it tells of it. It says, when he came to the gate of the city, talking about Elijah, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please give me a little water in a jar that I drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and says, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little jar, oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I might go in and prepare for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. She knew she was needy. She knew she was desperate. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you said. Make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, then you may make one for yourself and for your son. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. She didn't wait to see what he could do first. She believed his word. She believed the word of the prophet, saw her need, and she responded. That's what Jesus is trying to get them to see that they need to do. They need to hear his word and respond prior to asking for proof for God to do something for them. So this woman, she responds, and she was in great need. She knew she was desperate. She knew she was about to make the last meal for her and her son, and yet she sacrifices not just her own need. She puts the prophet's need ahead of her son. Something no mother would want to do. But she knows she's desperate and she's impoverished. And so she didn't fear. She acted in faith. And God supplied her need and brought her son back to life. Second illustration Jesus used was from the prophet Elijah, Elisha. He uses a different illustration. And they're, they're getting it so far, right? They're tracking. They're like, hang on. You're saying something like, God, God goes to those outside of Israel, our hated enemies, because they need. And he tells his second story. He says, and there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus, aren't we deserving? Shouldn't you be cleansing us? He says there was lots of lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, but God didn't send Elisha to any of them. Instead, he healed Naaman, the Syrian. And the Syrians were these enemies of Israel. And Jesus is using Naaman as an example. He used the widow as an example because of her physical poverty and her spiritual poverty. Naaman, he, he was oppressed in the sense he was actually falling to pieces. He had leprosy. He was falling apart physically. Parts of his body were falling off of him. So we have the poor and we have the oppressed. And at first, Naaman was too proud and angry to obey the prophet and go and wash in the river when his, because the prophet didn't even come out to him. Elisha sent his servant out to him, and Naaman, at first he was offended, he was angry, he was proud, but then here's what happened with Naaman. He responded, he humbled himself, and he responded to the word of his servant. He said, okay, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going I'm to act on the prophet's word because I need, because I'm broken in pieces. And he did. And, and God healed him. He was desperate. 
He knew he needed to be made whole, and God looked to him to heal him. People in Nazareth, now they're, they're getting it. Jesus is making a point. He was driving home the fact that, that, that God responds to those who are needy and unworthy. He came to set the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed free through forgiveness of sins. And that we have to see that we, we need Jesus in order to receive him. We have to acknowledge that we're poor. We have to set aside our pride. We have to see that we're blind, we're oppressed, we're falling to pieces without him if we want to receive the grace that he brings. And so the question we're meant to ask ourselves as we're hearing the story that they were meant to ask themselves is, is who are we more like? Are we more like the widow in Naaman? Or are we those who did not receive in all the land of Israel? Those who didn't see their needs. Because God responds to those who set aside their pride and they humbly see they need God's word and respond to his word in faith. And also the message they heard was that God is not bound to only give his grace to the Israelites. God gives his grace to all who need, both Jew and Gentile alike. And that's good news for us. But they can't take God's grace for granted. It doesn't just belong to them alone. It's all those who are needy who God gives himself to. And that was offensive to them. Weren't they God's chosen people? Weren't they special? Weren't they religious? Hadn't they lived their whole lives in a way that was good? I think there's some, some applications there for people today who grew up in the church, who grew up knowing the truth. It doesn't, just because you grew up hearing the truth, knowing the truth, you go to synagogue or, or church every Sunday morning, just because you live a certain lifestyle doesn't mean that you've received Jesus truly, that you've been changed by him. It's those who are desperately needy. They needed to see that, that they were no more deserving than their hated enemies. It, they needed to trust in God through Jesus without seeing any miracles. And they were ticked off by that. They were offended. How dare Jesus imply that their wicked enemies were more deserving of mercy than them because their enemies were poor in spirit and they weren't. And so Jesus, he confronts their pride, their self-sufficiency, and their sense of entitlement. And that's what Jesus does. Ron mentions just marvel at his teaching. His teaching confronts us in our pride, our self-sufficiency, our sense of entitlement. And look at their response in verse 28. He says, when they heard those things, all... All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They just went from marveling to now they're so angry at him that they're eaten up with it. They're filled with wrath. They're boiling over. You know why? Because the proud person gets angry when they don't get what they think they deserve. Have you ever gotten angry when you don't get what you think you deserve? That's an indication of pride. And that's what they do. They respond that way with, with extreme anger when they don't get what they think they deserve. And that proud person would rather kill somebody, at least in their hearts, than admit that they're not righteous before God, that they need God's righteousness, a righteousness that's not their own. And the proud person would rather murder than confess their unworthiness and their utter desperate need for God. And that's why we see so many people who are so angry at God in the world because they're proud. And they want to claim some righteousness, some merit, some worth on their own. The proud person can't say, I have no worth in myself. 
and I only deserve God's wrath and I need God to save me. They are too proud to say that. So they did what any proud person does in their heart and they boil over in anger. And look in the final verses. What we see in the final verses is that being proud, it's the worst result. It drives Jesus away. Being proud drives the Messiah away. Being proud drives the one who came to heal, to set free, to give sight away. And this switch, it flips. And they respond completely opposite how they did to begin with. They were marveling, but really their hearts are revealed. And look at verse 29, it says, they rose up and they drove him out of the town and they bring him to the brow of the cliff. Whoa, things escalated really quick. Holy cow, they're in church. Can you imagine? We're having a church service. Jesus gets up and talks and they're like, whoa, he's amazing. He's incredible. And then all of a sudden they're like, we want to kill him. And they take him outside to the highest place in the town overlooking this cliff. And they're getting ready to throw him up. They're purposely driving him out to the precipice because they want to kill him. What does that? Pride. Not seeing your need for Jesus. It says they bring him up to this brow of the cliff to throw him down. Somehow, he just walks away. It's, it's not normal, by the way. I think we're meant to see that this is, this is a supernatural occurrence. So they're, they're, this, this crowd en masse, the entire synagogue, is driving Jesus up to the, the edge of the cliff, and they are agreeing as a whole group that we, want, we hate him so bad, he's offended us so much, we're going to kill him. And then he says, but passing through a mist, he goes away. Whoa. This Jesus is not a normal person. But what we're meant to see is that those who are proud, they reject Jesus. And here's the saddest commentary. The saddest commentary is those last three words in verse 30. Look down your Bibles. Three words. He went away. Jesus went away. The Messiah, the one they've been longing for for 400 years, was back in their midst, and he come to proclaim sight to the blind, to set free those who were poor and impoverished, to, to forgive sins, to, to release those who were broken, to give them freedom. And they reject him, and he went away. He went away. That's the saddest words I can think of in Scripture is, Jesus went away. He goes away for those who are proud and refuse to confess their need. He goes away from those who refuse to respond to him humbly. Ironically, Mark told us later that, that he actually went to the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. Outside of Israel, he went there, and, and a huge number of people heard all that he was doing, and they came to him. And, and a couple of chapters later in Luke, we're going to see that, that he, he goes specifically to a Syrophoenician woman, and he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and so many people come, and they're healed of their diseases. They received Jesus. They saw their need for him, and he didn't go away from them, but here in his own hometown, the people who should have recognized him, who should have humbled themselves, they were religious people. Church-going, good moral people, Jesus goes away from. How damning that is. He went away. And we don't see really that the people of Nazareth ever respond. 
And what's the point that Luke is trying to drive home, that Jesus is driving home, that Luke is trying to get us to see? I think it's this main point that, that we can walk away with today. What's the main point? That humbly admit your need for Jesus. Here's the main point that we need to walk away today. Humbly admit your need for Jesus in order to receive his liberty. He came to proclaim liberty, freedom, forgiveness. Humbly admit. Humbly admit we have nothing to offer on our own. Don't ask him to prove himself to you. He's already done that. He died on the cross to prove his love for you. He was resurrected to prove his power over sin and death and hell. He's already proven. So don't make him do things in your life. And Jesus, if you do this for me, I will follow you. If you heal me, if you give me riches, if you change the circumstances in my life, then God, I'll respond to you if you do things for me. And don't, don't be the person who's proud and, and self-righteous and refuses and rejects Jesus because you refuse to say, I'm not good enough on my own. I have no worth on my own. And I need you, Jesus. Humbly admit your need for Jesus in order to receive his liberty. Luke's trying to get us to see they were, they were too familiar with Jesus. They didn't admit their need. They didn't admit their poverty, their desperation. They acted like they were deserving. And they rejected the only one who could have freed them. They rejected the only one who could bring them the riches of God's grace and liberty and sight. They rejected their Savior. They pushed him out in their pride. May that not be the case for any today. Whether you have not yet received Jesus or whether you are a believer, even for believers, there, there's a, a place in our lives where God resists us. He resists the proud, but he, he gives grace. Oh, he gives grace to the humble. May we see our needs and rejoice in the liberty that Jesus brings, the, the freedom from sin, the, the freedom from shame and guilt. That's what we receive when we lay down our pride. May we all be a little more impressive like Mrs. Farmer and rely on Jesus every day. Jesus here, he is the good news of God's grace for all who believe. I love in Revelation 3, verse 20, you can write that down. We don't have it on the overheads for you, but Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, they see their need. They say, I need to have Jesus come in. I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, meaning this is how we conquer, by, by receiving Jesus, seeing our need for him, receiving him in. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He was an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Humbly admit our need for Jesus in order to receive his liberty. Let's pray.